Well, it is uh, great to be together. Uh, it's it's fun. every time I get to come uh, preach here at Grace. It's so fun because there's there's so many familiar faces I don't get to see often. So um, it is. I love these opportunities. It's good to be here. Uh, that being said, with all the familiar faces that I don't get to see very often. I am going to give the benediction and be out of here very quickly this morning. I'm going to try to make a uh, my son's YMCA basketball game back in Lexington. I love you. I think you all are all wonderful. I'm leaving after I get the benediction. So don't be offended. Uh, okay, so it's my understanding you are in a series entitled, uh, it's like a topical series on humanity. I am only human. I think it's what it's entitled. Uh, exploring the origins of what it means to be human uh, from the Genesis account. And there are, of course, many aspects of God's design for humanity, most of them uncontroversial. Uh, For example, I believe last week you explored that to be human is to work, not a very controversial idea in itself. Well, this week, Shane very kindly asked me to preach on to be human is to be male and female. And uh, not too long ago, this too would not be a controversial statement, but now I don't think I have to tell you that um, that male-female, historically self-evident truth has risen to become one of the most controversial statements uh, one can make in our society. Um, Your personal uneasiness around this topic, perhaps even the pressure you feel to self-censor on this topic, and perhaps an experience you may have with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, maybe even a family member um, who identifies as a gender contrary to the biology of their birth. All of these things point to one thing that which has been uncontroversially true historically and still today outside of a progressive Western society. Uh, globally speaking, is still uncontroversial. Now, for us, in our context, is one of the most controversial beliefs you can hold. Uh, Mr. Rogers, the one cultural icon of kindness and love, acceptance, and so forth. If you got a problem with Mr. Rogers, uh, then you yourself have the problem. Uh, even Mr. Rogers, I don't think, would have survived this cultural moment. He once recorded an episode where, with his... Uh, congenial voice and countenance saying this, boys are boys from the beginning. If you are born a boy, you stay a boy. Girls are girls right from the start. If you are born a girl, you stay a girl and grow up to be a lady. Only girls can be mommies. Only boys can be daddies. I don't have to tell you that if Mr. Rogers said that today, Mr. Rogers would have gotten kicked out of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And if our society would not tolerate sweet Mr. Rogers in his sweater vest believing and expressing historical views on gender. What hope do you and I have? It is what it is um, for a variety of reasons. I don't have time to discuss this morning. I do talk a lot about this topic, and you can find that online if you want more. But I don't have time to go too deep into why it is what it is, but it is what it is. Male and female, he created them, has risen to be one of the most uh, culturally controversial statements in the Bible. And that's the statement that Shane has asked me to explore with you this morning. Thank you, Shane Terrell. Um, I I have a conspiracy theory. He planned his surgery. Uh, 
It's actually, it's not a conspiracy theory. Hang on, hang on. I, this morning he texted me, praying for you. Um, thanks for preaching and so forth. I said, excited to preach this very uncontroversial subject you have given me. He said, I purposely sidestepped when they offered my surgery date. I'm like, well, I wouldn't have to preach male and female if I take that date. And Kevin said he is out of town, so there you go, Providence, Robert. So, um, but listen, hey, listen, in my experience, honestly, I, I, I do speak quite a bit on this subject. In my experience, when we actually explore the beauty of God's design for gender, when instead of arguing with our world, how they are wrong in this issue, we choose instead to simply proclaim and more importantly practice God's design for gender, uh, the Christian truth becomes far less controversial and sometimes even irresistibly beautiful in this world that I think is longing to find beauty on this topic. So I am not here to argue about gender. If that's what you're expecting, I'm going to be disappointing. I'm here to tell what I believe is a better story on gender God's story, God's design, God's glory, and gender. That is what I am here to proclaim this morning. And the way I want to do this is by uh, simply exploring the, different, the similarities and differences that we find in this passage between male and female because both are on display in this one verse. So similarities, and then we're going to look at differences. But let's start with the similarities because I think this is really important. Though the Bible recognizes... Uh, differences between the genders, as we will see in a moment, what we need to first appreciate is that male and female have more in common than they have differences. And we see that in our passage. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. And then it qualifies it as male and female he created them. So we give so much attention to male and female he created them while neglecting the entire emphasis of Genesis 1, the apex of Genesis 1, that these creatures are the image of God together. Both male and female, on a most fundamental level, share this in common. Both are created in the image of God. And so while there are differences that we are about to explore, we, are, we have more in common than we have difference. Here's part of the problem that Christianity is facing when it comes to gender. While there are differences between male and female, what needs to be confessed is that we have harmfully overstated those differences. I affirm gender differences and even roles, as we will see in a moment. And I also denounce the unbiblical differences that we have placed upon gender. Our gender norms have been formed far more by the Industrial Revolution than thoughtful, nuanced, biblical worldview. Here's what happened, socially speaking. Before the industrial age, when uh, families just were together with their own piece of land and the rugged demands of life in that context, you saw far less differences playing out between the genders. But when vocation in our culture became industrialized, it dramatically changed the way we view gender. Men go off to workplace environments that uh, really had kind of fraternity culture of misogyny. 
women stayed home to maybe cook a meal and do some chores and hang out with girls and trivial social clubs. And this industrialized view of gender unwittingly became conservative Christianity's view of gender. But this is not what we find in Scripture. And I want to show you what I mean by exploring uh, some passages on both male and female. Let's start with female. When people think of biblical womanhood, what is the go-to passage? If, if you're around Christianity for any amount of time, you'll know that Proverbs 31 is, is the go-to passage on what it means to be a woman, whatever that is. And we, and, and we even have this term, Proverbs 31, woman, as if this passage shows us what it means to be female. But have you ever considered Proverbs 31 in detail? Because what emerges are characteristics that we normally associate in our culture with masculinity. Let me read some highlights. It says, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So this is a hardworking tenacity and strength to provide for her family. Now, wait a minute. I thought men were the providers of the family. And this isn't, uh, this isn't just domestic provisions that we see. Verse 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. She's an investor. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She's a farmer. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong, strong arms. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She's a savvy entrepreneur. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's fighting the cause of justice. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the days to come. I thought men were the strength of the home, the, the strong, steady, confident ones, and, and women were uh, prone toward irrational anxieties. Well, here's a woman in strength and dignity. And far from irrational, vain imagination, anxiety, she's laughing at the times to come. She's so confident in her ability to care for her home. Do you see my point? The very passage that is the go-to passage on womanhood ascribes to females what we normally ascribe to males in our culture. Okay, now let's turn to our visions of masculinity. What is an alpha male according to Scripture? John Wayne, Joe Rogan... Well, let's start with Jesus himself. Dane Ortland has written an amazing book called Gentle and Lowly that I highly recommend to you. And the premise of the book is built off of this fascinating observation that there is only one time when we are let in on the heart of Jesus. We know a lot about the words and teachings of Jesus. We know a lot about the deeds of Jesus. But what about the heart of Jesus, the core of his being? What is Jesus like in his heart of hearts? Here we only have one verse where he talks about his heart. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Is that not amazing? This is the sovereign, omnipotent creator of heaven and earth, the eternal judge of living in the dead. I think that qualifies as alpha male. And when his heart is unveiled for us to see, it is gentle and lowly. And this is not just Jesus. This is his expectation for every man who follows him. When Jesus gives his all-male disciples instructions for their lives, they are the antithesis of cultural machismo. 
the poor in spirit. I thought men were supposed to be haughty in spirit. Those who mourn, we think men ought to be tough and rugged with stiff upper lips. Jesus says, no, blessed are the men who mourn. Pure in heart, we think alpha men are those who view women as objects to exploit for their own gain. No, these are men who are pure in heart. Peacemakers, I thought men were troublemakers. Those who are persecuted, we think men are the fighters, themselves the persecutors. No, these are the ones who are persecuted. Do you see what Jesus does to cultural masculinity? He turns it on its head. Now, let's go to the great Apostle Paul, literally the alpha leader of early Christianity. His commandment to us is to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, patience, and above all else, love. Doesn't that sound like John Wayne to you? And when Paul describes his own ministry, this is what he says. This is Paul, the alpha male leader of the early church, describing his ministry. We did not seek glory from people, whether that be from you or from others. I thought that's the life ambition of the male, the pursuit of self-exaltation and of glory and power. He says, no, we didn't pursue that. Now listen to this. But instead... We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Is there room in your visions of masculinity for that? Now listen, the reason why I'm belaboring this first point, because I think I need to for this context, emphasizing the differences we tend to associate with men and women are more cultural differences than biblical differences. Strength is celebrated in woman. Gentleness is celebrated in man, including the man, Jesus Christ. So the differences cannot be cultural gender stereotypes that we have constructed. Both are in the image of God. Therefore, both share all of these attributes in common, more in common than we have differences. So here's what emerges when it comes to a biblical vision of Male and female, he created them. What, what emerges is a Venn diagram. Picture two overlapping circles with a lot of overlap. Yes, with unique spaces on the edges, but more in common than different. Our culture doesn't view a Venn diagram. They just view a circle. We are the same, no binary whatsoever. Conservative evangelical Christians have wrongly advocated likewise for a circle, but divided neatly in half. One half is blue, the other half is pink. On one side are masculine norms and duties, on the other side are feminine norms and duty. A very clean binary. The Bible's view of gender is a Venn diagram with much in common and room on the edges for innate differences. But what are these differences? Though we do have more in common than we have difference, yes, there still are differences to be explored. So let's move there. All right, first and foremost, there are obvious biological uh, differences. Anatomy, bone density, level of testosterone, estrogen. These are scientific biological differences that no one can deny, even as our society vainly attempts to do so. But the question is whether those biological differences are reflected in our personhood as well. 
The fundamental shift that is taking place in our culture is the separation of our biology and our personhood. The terms we now use are sex and gender. Historically, that's the same. Now they are not. Now sex is your biology and gender is your identity. And while there may be differences, while there may be differences in sex, there is no difference in gender. Or a better way to state that is gender differences, gender norms that do exist are social constructs that we have created for ourselves. But there is a deep irony to be pointed out here. In some ways, I would agree that gender norms are predominantly social constructs. I just discussed that. That's why I started that way. Much of what we think of, of what it means to be male and female, is what it comes from gender stereotypes that emerged from the Industrial Revolution rather than Scripture itself. So I would agree that many gender stereotypes are unhelpful and even harmful. But the irony is that nowhere are these stereotypes being re reinforced more in our society than in the very movement that is trying to dismantle them. I can't be faithful to this topic without at least offering a mild critique of this ideology in our society, transgender ideology, that has made this topic so controversial. Here's my one critique, if you will allow me. Transgenderism is seeking to eradicate gender norms by making gender norms so fluid that we can even choose which gender we identify with. But in the greatest of ironies, that same transgenderism is, the only, is, is only reinforcing those norms it seeks to dismantle. Here's what I mean. When a biological male identifies as a female, what are they identifying with? Female stereotypes. I was reading an article yesterday of a mom who began uh, transitioning her young child um, at the age of three. Because his favorite color was pink, he liked to play with dolls, not roughhouse with the boys, had a gentle, a sensitive countenance to him. Aha, the mom concluded. He must be a girl. But do you see what's going on there? My boy does not fit neatly within the gender binary stereotypes and norms. Therefore, he must be a girl and not a boy. That only reinforces the very norms that they're frustrated with. My son can't be a boy who likes pink and doesn't like to wrestle because that's what boys like to do. And so instead of broadening our views of what it means to be masculine, we simply transition our boy to the gender associated with those very norms. Transitioning only seeks to embody the very stereotypes our world is seeking to dismantle. A biological male who identifies as a female is identifying with female stereotypes. A biological female who identifies as a male is identifying with male stereotypes. Either gender binary is a thing or it's not. If it's not, then what are we doing? Transitioning into these different biological gender norms. There is, of course, the emergence of non-binary. I don't fit the stereotype of the gender binary. I'm neither male nor female, but even there... They're still defending and defining themselves by gender binary stereotypes, meaning someone who's non-binary doesn't fit in the binary. But in this way, they admit the binary by declaring they don't fit into the binary. You see, they're trapped. Ironically, nothing is reinforcing these harmful gender norms more in culture than transgenderism. 
Here is the problem our society is facing. Gender in our culture is simultaneously nothing and everything. So conservative Christianity and gender ideology actually are strange bedfellows in this weird scenario. Both are starting with a faulty premise of fallen gender stereotypes. So let's step outside the madness, outside cultural gender differences, and explore biblical gender differences. While we share much in common, the Bible argues that just like there are biological differences, so even though your, your biology, your bodies share so much in common, there are, namely just one, pretty significant difference, but we have most in common, but we do have differences, so too this is the truth in the male and female gender personhood. And we see that when God actually creates male and female in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, he says, let us create male and female in our image. In Genesis 2, we see how he does it. Man is created first, and then out of man, woman is created. That is a profoundly significant moment in implications. And when we understand its meaning, we will see the biblical differences. Man is created first, and thus he bears the role of foundational strength. But how was man created? He was created from dirt. And candidly, if you look at men, they look like they've been created from dirt, right? I know you're attracted to your husband, but nobody else is. We look like we came from dirt. It's okay to admit it. Not so with women, right? Whereas the man was created out of dirt, the woman is the only creature made out of the glory and beauty of God's image. Man is image of God with the breath of life, and out of man comes woman. She is the highest point of the created order. The apex of creation is the image of God, but the apex of the image of God is the female glory. So, he is the foundation of God's image. She is the glory of God's image. When it comes to strength, male transcends female. When it comes to glory, female transcends male. Men, you're the mightiest, mightiest creature in all of creation, the foundation and strength of God's handiwork, the fullest expression of the breathtaking power of God's image. Women, you are the loveliest creature in all of creation. You are the high point and apex of God's handiwork, the fullest expression and breathtaking beauty of God's image. Together, they are perfect compliments in the greatest story of all creation, reflecting the image of the creator. And that complement, that complementary nature is why we call our doctrine on gender complementarianism. Complementarianism is the view that genders are equal in value and dignity and share much in common as both are image bearers of God. But that image is more nuanced both have complementary roles to play in imaging God. So how does this work? I like to, uh, I liken it to a dance. I call it the dance of gender. For a dance to be beautiful, someone has to lead, someone has to follow. The leader's role is the strength, the follower's role is the beauty. 
If you see a good dance, I'm talking about a good dance here. I'm not, not the dance, if you watch my wife and I, it's just not that. I'm talking about the professional dancers. The professional dance where there's twirling and throwing and all of that, okay? That's the illustration. A good dance, what happens? Nobody is looking at the dude. The dance highlights the glory of the woman. But behind the glory of the woman is the man's strength. Again, in a real dance where he has to support her, lead her, spin her, guide her. This can only be accomplished if there are roles assigned to the differences. Try to imagine a dance with no leader and no follower. Either both will attempt to lead, both will attempt to follow, or neither will attempt to just be a mess. That is an ugly dance. For a dance to work, these complementary roles are needed. But roles should never be equated with value. Though a good dance relies upon the strength of the leader, that dance that does not make him greater than the one who is following. And though a good dance will highlight the beauty of the follower, this does not make her greater than the man who is leading. Instead, a dance is the display of co-equals delighting in their role and celebrating their role of the complement. This dance is how God designed gender to work in both the home and in the church. And that is an important qualifier here. These gender roles that I'm talking about, they only apply within the context of vows. So um, patriarchy, patriarchal society will take these roles and apply them across the entire society. That's not what Christians believe. What Christians believe is that when you take vows, there are roles that come into play. Vows of marriage, there are roles within that. Vows to join a church community, there are roles within that. Within those institutions, God has designed this dance of gender to play out, not a society as whole. Maybe it'll help for me to not just use illustrations but biblical examples. So we just finished the Christmas season, right? Where we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Well, when you think about the uh, birth story of Jesus, who comes to mind besides Jesus himself? Mary, of course. Her faith, her strength, her determination. We Protestants, of course, don't venerate her like our Catholic friends, but no doubt she is the glory of the story outside of Jesus himself. The angel says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then Mary sings this song about how she has found favor with the Lord, and all generations are going to celebrate her glory. All generations will call her blessed. That's some big stuff. She is glorious in the nativity of our Lord. What about Joseph? Where's he? <laughs> Where's Joseph in all this? He is the humble, reserved, yet resolute, supporting, protecting strength of the story, not seeking glory or power or credit or any of these things that we insecure men tend to seek after. He is none of that. Mary is unmistakable in the story. Joseph is easy to miss. But, and this is important, 
Mary got blessed, got that blessed announcement from heaven that I just quoted. The high and favored one, generation shall call you blessed, chosen to bear the Messiah. But when Herod seeks to kill the Messiah, who does the angel come to? Joseph. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. When the child and mother are threatened, the angel comes to the father, to the husband, and tells the humble, behind-the-scenes Joseph, get your child and wife out of there. And it's Joseph who saved the life of his wife, who is the glory of his story, and his child, who is the greatest glory of the story. Mary is the glory. Joseph is the chivalry. And then the baby grows up and fulfills the greatest dance of all. The number one metaphor of those for whom Jesus died is what? The bride. The bride of Christ. And this bridegroom whose heart is described as meek and lowly, this meek and lowly bridegroom has come to slay the dragon and get his girl. He is a valiant, courageous, strong Savior, willing to lay down his strength for his bride. We are the bride, the glorious ones, who will be celebrated for eternity to come. But he is the bridegroom who saves the bride. That's what the Bible has to say about gender. And that is a story we have to offer this world, dying for this story. Not gender stereotypes of culture, the dance of gender we find in Scripture, a dance that ultimately led to our salvation and the coming marriage supper of the Lamb where the bridegroom will be joined forever to the bride for whom he died. Let me pray. Lord, give us this greater story. Give us this greater vision in a world that is so desperate to discover what you mean by male and female you created them. Lord, may we be heralds of the story, but far more importantly, may we be practitioners of this story. May we be found, wherever you have us, may we be found faithful in the dance of gender that you have called us to dance. Lord, I'm just in particularly heavy for the marriages in this room. You, Holy Spirit, take these words and apply it deeply into the marriages so that the marriages will be a testimony, indeed a protest to this world. In this world of gender confusion and madness, may the marriages of this church proclaim the greater story of a bridegroom who has come to save his bride. Let it be so, and let it begin in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.